Well, good morning, Windsor Road. I can hardly wait to hear what I have to say. <laughs> this is your first Sunday here. My name's Randy. This may be my last Sunday here. I tell you, <laughs> reading the crowd here. We're in a series through the Gospel of Mark. We've been studying through the life of Christ, and typically what we do at Windsor is we uh, uh, start through a book of the Bible, and then we just kind of uh, preach right through it. And so uh, today, we are in Mark chapter 12, looking at verses 13 to 17, and we're going to talk about this, uh, this really sticky issue of God and government. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn there. You'll find Mark 12, 13 to 17 on page 718 of your church Bibles. If you don't have a copy of God's Word as your own and you'd like to take, uh, uh, there's one in the pouch in front of you, you just put your name on it and take it home and please receive it as a gift here from the church. And uh, you'll find Mark 12, 13 to 17 on page 718. Follow along with me as I read. Later they, that is the Sanhedrin, The Sanhedrin was the supreme uh, Jewish ruling council in, uh, in Jerusalem there at the time. Later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, Whose portrait is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. This is God's word. This week I read about a pastor who spent several weeks in the suburbs of Paris ministering among North African Muslim children. This was uh, only months after 9-11. When the children heard that uh, the pastor and the missions group that he was with, when the children found out that they were Americans, they immediately and intentionally started poking at their political nerves. Several of the children started chanting, Bin Laden, Bin Laden, he's my father, he's my father. One Muslim man, perhaps around 25 years of age, gazed provocatively at the pastor and said, Viva Saddam Hussein. Worst of it was a small boy with a huge grin on his face who mimed the planes crashing into the World Trade Center and the collapse of the towers. And the pastor remembered that and said, at that point in time, I had to make a decision. I had to decide who I was. Was I 
there in that country as an American or was I there as a Christian, an ambassador for Jesus? The pastor said, I'm used to standing up for my country and for my political convictions, but I knew that to do so would mark me as their enemy and that by clinging to my identity as an American, I would lose the opportunity to represent Jesus to them. I had a decision that I had to make. Who am I? And whose kingdom comes first? Now, those are excellent questions, especially as we consider these verses here in Mark chapter 12, verses 13 to 17. Jesus is confronted with a very, very sticky issue of faith and politics, God and government. How are God's people to live in relationship to the state? And how, how does God want us to be citizens in this country knowing that we are citizens of heaven. And what does that look like? What does that look like? Well, to help answer those questions today, what I'd like to do is um, I'd, like, I'd like to give the story behind the story first. I'd like to give the back story. You know, if uh, we were to do an exposition of uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, um, we would miss so much if we didn't realize the context in which that speech was given. We, we, we would need the context, the context of American history, the context of the Civil War and, and, and Reconstruction, and then segregation, and then the Civil Rights Movement. And, and by appreciating that context, then, then well, th- that speech becomes alive. And I want us to do that. I want us to, I want us to overhear the backstory, the story behind the story concerning these verses. After we look at the backstory, then I want us to look at the story. We're going to look through verse by verse, Mark 12, 13 to 17, and then I want us to consider our story. What does Jesus want from us as a result of these verses in Mark 12? So that's where we're going. The backstory, the story, and then our story. The backstory first. The backstory first involves a Jewish hero who lived about 200 years before Christ, a Jewish warrior by the name of Judas Maccabeus, a.k.a. Judah the Hammer. Judah the Hammer, a Hebrew warrior who led an insurgency against an evil Syrian king, a guy by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, Antiochus Epiphanes, Epiphanes had outlawed the Torah. Uh, He had desecrated the temple. He uh, persecuted the Hebrew people. And a patriot, a Hebrew patriot by the name of Judah the Hammer, Judas Maccabeus, uh, gathered a group of people passionate for the Torah. And he knew that he could never defeat Antiochus Epiphany on the open battlefield. So he began to conduct guerrilla operations. He won some initial victories. He defeated the Syrians. And he rode triumphantly into the city of Jerusalem. He cleansed and purified the temple and restored true worship. And this was the year 164 B.C. And And if you have uh, um, Jewish friends, they'll tell you all about 
Judas Maccabeus, and the, uh, the special uh, holy day season that they celebrate every December. It's a holiday called, remember? Hanukkah, that's right, Hanukkah. Judas Maccabeus, Judah the Hammer, this, this, uh, this hero who um, you know, defeated the Syrians, rode triumphantly into Jerusalem, cleansed the temple, restored true worship. 164 B.C., Fast forward now to A.D. 6. A.D. 6. Rome is a world power. Augustus Caesar runs the empire, and in the year A.D. 6, Augustus imposed a head tax on all subjects within the Roman province of Judea. It was a tax paid for the privilege of being a subject of the empire. It was, the cost was a denarius, and a denarius was uh, the equivalent of one day's wage. And so it wasn't that much, but it was the idea behind it that infuriated the Hebrew people, because it was a reminder to them that they were no longer a free people as they were when they had been liberated from Egyptian slavery. Instead, they were under the oppression of the Roman Empire, and so they hated the empire for it, they hated Rome for it. They hated the head tax. And so in the year A.D. 6, another Judas, Judas the Galilean, staged a revolt. Judas began a movement called the Zealot Movement. The Zealots felt that the only government should be God. Uh, a really a pure theocracy. So uh, 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 Yahweh-worshiping communities would just gather and everything would take care of itself. And he staged a revolt. And in Acts chapter 5, verse 37, Judas the Galilean was quickly crushed by the Romans. And so we have kind of a pattern going on here. A pattern uh, here, two guys named Judas, both fighting against oppressive empires, both dealing with the issues of temples and taxes and revolutions and messiahship. And, and now we have 25 years after that, another Galilean, Jesus of Nazareth, comes on the scene. Who is this? Who is this? Who is That's the question we hear throughout Mark's gospel, especially in Mark 1 through 8. Well, Mark tells us who this Jesus is in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus is Israel's long-awaited Messiah. And by his teaching and his miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus shows himself. And, and then we get to Mark chapter 9, at the Mount of Transfiguration, the voice from heaven clearly identifies who Jesus is. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And then we read a little later on how Jesus rode triumphantly into Jerusalem. Okay, what kind of a king is this? He rides triumphantly into Jerusalem. He upends the temple system, which had become corrupted and hopeless. Christ came to judge the temple and to shut it down. And, and if you recall, they're sandwiched between these temple incidents, this fig tree, this tree that was leafy and looked alive and green, but it was fruitless. 
And there's this sandwiching between temple and tree and temple and tree and temple to illustrate that this this tree and this temple, they're one and the same. And Jesus curses the fig tree and then the very next day becomes a skeletal, bony, uh, rotted tree from the roots. And the point is very clear. The fate of the tree is the future of the temple. This appearance of leafiness, but no fruit. Well, that caused quite a commotion, as you might imagine. So in Mark chapter 12, the Sanhedrin, Israel's supreme ruling council, sends uh, several parties or delegates to scout Jesus. The Sanhedrin there is both offended by Jesus and afraid of Jesus because of his popularity with the people. So they send delegations to Jesus. Why, in Mark 12, uh, the scribes ask Jesus how he interprets Scripture. And, and then the Sadducees ask Jesus uh, what he believes about the resurrection. And here, in Mark 12, 13 to 17, they send the Herodians and the Pharisees to ask Christ about Caesar and God. But it's all within this context of these other uh, would-be messiahs. And it's all in the context of uh, triumph, previous triumphal entries and cleansing of the temples. Who is this? Who is this? That's the backstory. Now the story. These verses here. The Herodians and the Pharisees. The Herodians... Um, well, the Herodians believed that in order to get along with the Roman Empire, you had to go along. They were, they were just go-along guys. You've got to get along, you've got to go along. While the Pharisees were much more nationalistic. They weren't zealots, mind you, uh, but uh, they didn't care for the Romans. And so, so um, apart from Christ, the Herodians and the Pharisees, why, they were political enemies. But, you know... The enemy of my enemy is my friend. So these two political groups found themselves in league against Jesus and the Sanhedrin. Verse 13 sent some of them to trap Jesus in his words. Catch him. That literally is a hunting term. To trap in a violent way. To catch him in his words. And so they flatter him. Teacher. All these groups start by saying teacher. Teacher, we know who you are. And they give four descriptors of Jesus here in these verses. We know that you're a person of integrity. And we know that you're not swayed by opinion polls. And we know that you don't show favoritism. And we know that you teach truth in the way of God. Ironically, these four observations about Christ were all true. They just didn't believe him. And here's the question. Teacher, is it right? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should, should we pay taxes or should we not? Huh? And they asked twice. Do you see that? Why? Because they want Jesus to come down on one side of the fence or the other. It's a, it's a yes, no question. And they believed it to be uh, a question that had a no-win situation. You Star Trek fans would appreciate this as the Kobayashi Maru, right? 
I mean, it's a no-win scenario. Think about it. If Jesus says, yes, yes, pay the taxes, well, then they can accuse him of being in league with the Romans, even idolatry. And the entire message of his ministry, the coming of the kingdom of God being among you, Jesus would lose all credibility if he says, yes, pay the taxes. On the other hand, if he says no, well, then that would you know, be tantamount to declaring a revolt. And, 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 and Jesus and, and his gospel community would be swiftly and quickly suppressed by the brutality of the Roman Empire, just like before. It's a Kobayashi Maru here. What's he going to say? I mean, the cameras are rolling. The microphone is hot. The crowd is listening. The enemies are smirking. How's he going to get out of this one? There's no way out in their minds. Jesus pauses. Anybody here got a denarius on them? What? A denarius. Has anybody got a denarius? Well, well, yeah. Well, let's take a look at it. Hold it up. Is this a trick question? Just hold it up. Thank you. Whose portrait is on that? Whose, whose icon is on that? And whose inscription is that? And they said, Caesar's. And they were right. In fact, here's what the inscription actually said. This would have been the actual coin that they would have held. That's a denarius. That's, that's Tiberius, the Roman emperor at the time. And that's his image. And the writing on the perimeter there, oh, here's what that says. It says, it says Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. And then on the back, would have been another image. That's Tiberius' mother. And there's an inscription. It says, High Priest. High Priest. Now, don't miss it. The coin says, Tiberius is king. Tiberius is divine. And Tiberius is high priest. No wonder this coin was so offensive. I mean, Israel's monotheistic. I mean, they didn't like it that Rome had occupied them, and and now they had to pay this tax in a currency which they believed to be idolatrous. And so, you know, many Orthodox Jews would have, have, um, well, they would have used copper coins instead of this because the copper coins didn't contain an inscription. Or an image, or an icon, didn't have these highly offensive images. And so, therefore, we can conclude that Jesus was orthodox, so that he would not have used the silver-minted denarii, and that's why he had to ask for one. Ironically, the Pharisees, the separate ones, 
the self-proclaimed bastions of orthodoxy, they had no problems at all pulling one out of their pocket and showing him, you see. And now do you understand why verse 15 uh, says Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Here they were trying to, they were trying to indict him uh, for idolatrous support to an empire, but here they were holding the idols in their own pockets. And then Jesus pronounces to them in verse 17. Caesar's inscription, that's Caesar's icon. Well, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Meaning, pay him what you owe him. Pay him what you the, the The coin that was minted by the emperor that had his image stamped on it, in those days, what you need to understand, that while the coin was in circulation, even though it was used by the subjects, it was still considered personal property of the emperor. And so Jesus is saying, Caesar wants his coin. Give it to him because it's his. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And Jesus could have stopped right there. But he doesn't, does he? He over-answers their question when he says, and give to God what is God's. And at that, the crowd went, ah. They were amazed at him. Why is that? I'll tell you in a few minutes. That's the story. Story before the story, the story, and now our story. And our story is this. This is, the, this is the big idea. This is what Jesus wants us to learn from his encounter with his enemies. It's simply this. Pay your taxes to Caesar, but give your life to God. Jesus demands that his people pay the state, whatever they owe the state, whatever belongs to the state, and Jesus demands that we give to God what is God's. Pay your taxes to Caesar, but give your life to God. There it is. Now, this prompts two questions, at least in my mind, and the first question is this. Well, what do we owe Caesar? What, what, what do we owe Caesar? And, and the New Testament teaches us that we owe Caesar three debts. First, taxes. Jesus says such. Your taxes. Pay the tax. The coin belongs to him. Give it to him. It's his. So, so Jesus is not in league with Judas the Galilean who wants to create a theocracy where there would be no recognized government on earth, just a series of communities who worship Yahweh. That system doesn't work. Read the book of Judges. It hasn't worked since Genesis chapter 3. You see, the reason why we have this thing called government is that we live in a broken, sinful, fallen world. The purpose of government is to restrain evil and pursue peace and deliver justice and fairness. And without government, there would be unrestrained evil, massive injustice, and non-existent peace. So even bad government 
is better than no government because the alternative is anarchy. Read the book of Judges. You hear what Jesus is saying? Jesus contends that a government has authority whether or not the government supports the one true God. Think about it. Jesus says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, knowing full well that Caesar's going to nail him to a cross on Good Friday. So if Christ insists that his people financially support the very government that will put him to death, is there a government we can't support? Uh, Yes, of course. Christians would appreciate a more just government. But Christians do not need a just government in order to make more and more disciples for Christ. Because you see, Christians have always known that they are exiles no matter who is in Washington. That's why Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. And that means that the kingdom of God is not of the United States of America. And the kingdom of God is not of any particular political party of the United States of America. You know, it just so happened that the Roman government, which persecuted Christ and his apostles and his church, also imposed a military peace along with massive infrastructure, roads and highways, which permitted the expansion of Christianity across the empire so that the church grew, get this, 40% per decade for the first 300 years. So, pay the tax. Oh, and as Americans, if you don't like your taxes, then peacefully petition your representatives. Those in houses of Congress, your senator, your representative, peacefully demonstrate your displeasure under the laws of our Constitution. And when you do all of these things, give thanks to God that he lets you live in a nation where you can demonstrate your disappointment. What a deal. We get to choose Caesar every two years, every four years, every six years. They didn't have that in Mark chapter 12. So pay your tax. This leads us to the second debt that the New Testament says we owe the state. You owe them your taxes and you owe them your peaceable lives. The Apostle Paul really expounds on what Jesus says here in Mark 12 when he writes in Romans 13, 6-7, this is also why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing, give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. And the implication is that you actually do owe these things. It's interesting. It's interesting. In the Gospels, Jesus never attacks the system of the Roman Empire as a system. And why? It's because he knows that the rule of an unfavorable government is not at the root of it all. Rather, what's at the root of of it all is the rule of an ungodly heart. And Jesus is after my ungodly heart. So the New Testament church didn't try to save itself by trying to cut a deal with Nero. 
or any other Roman Caesar, nor did it try to save itself by trying to stir up a revolution like Judas the Galilean, nor did it try to ally itself with the competing empire next door like the Persian Empire. The church rather survived. Do you know how the church survived? The church survived by preaching Christ and him crucified, buried, and risen, and the church survived by living out the love of Christ even if it meant death. You owe Caesar your taxes. You owe Caesar your peaceable life, and you owe Caesar your prayers. Paul says this in 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Notice Paul says that he wants us to pray for kings. Listen, Paul prays for the very king who will soon order his execution. And you can't pray for your president? Really? And why do we do this? Why do we do this? We do this, we do this because it pleases God. Because it pleases God. Because he is our savior, not the government. God is. Caesar's not your savior. Jesus is. And we do this, we do this for the sake of others so that they might know the God we worship. Ultimately, we want others to bow and worship the one true God who is our Savior. His name is Jesus, the true king over all empires, you see. And this leads us to the second question. What is it that we owe God? What is it that we owe God? We'll go back to what Christ says to his enemies. What's, a, what's, a, what's the inscription say? Whose portrait is that? Whose image? Whose icon is that on the coin? Jesus says, you give to Caesar whatever has his icon stamped on it. And then Jesus says this, I want you to give to God whatever has his icon on it. And every Hebrew, every Hebrew in that country, every Hebrew in that crowd, whether Pharisee, Sadducee, Herodian, Orthodox, every Hebrew knew the answer to that question. We have the icon of God stamped on our lives, and therefore we owe God all that we have to all that he is. What belongs to God goes beyond our money. We owe him everything. You see, that's, Jesus is over-answering the question And he's over-answering the question because he knows that those Pharisees have not given all they have to all that God is. And he calls them on it. Otherwise, why would they be trying to trap his son? And that's why the crowds were amazed. Jesus puts them on the spot. You render to God what is God's, and they haven't. And that's why he tells this parable of the tenants in Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. 
They've withheld themselves from the one true God. They're wearing, they're, they're wearing the pastor's clothing. They're, they're saying pastoral type words. They look green and leafy, but they are fruitless. And Jesus calls them on it. You render to God what is God's. And what he's saying here is to, so to render to God what is God's, Jesus is asserting the limited scope of government. You may give some of what Caesar wants, but you may not give all that he demands. For when Caesar demands what God forbids, we must say with Peter and the apostles in Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than men. So when Archbishop Desmond Tutu was released from prison during apartheid in South Africa, a journalist asked him, how long do you intend going on defying the South African government? And Archbishop Tutu gently smiled and said, we are not defying anyone. We are simply trying to obey God. So to render to God what is God's means that Government is to be a servant of God. Isn't that what we just read in Romans chapter 13? Well, that was revolutionary in the first century because the Roman Caesars didn't count themselves as servants. Why? You crucified servants. Roman Caesars counted themselves as divine. No, not in the New Testament. No, Jesus says, government, they're servants. That's what they are. They're servants. And so, and so to render to God the things that are God's allows God's people, Christians, to enter the service of government and politics. Jesus never told the Roman centurion to quit his job. He didn't. See, the fact is we need as many of God's people involved in government in imitation to Christ. What, what qualities? Well, let's start with the ones that... Jesus' enemies said, you know, unwittingly true about our Lord. Integrity, not swayed by people's opinions, no favoritism, teaching according to truth. And, and my goodness, why God's people need to be exhibiting that in their involvement in, in government as military, politicians, judges, local, state, officials, and police. We need public servants of that caliber. Public servants who will use power and authority responsibly like God's servants in government in his word, I'm thinking of Joseph in the book of Genesis who was prime minister to Pharaoh. I'm thinking of Daniel. Uh, I, I'm thinking of Queen Esther. I'm thinking of Nehemiah. To render to God what is God's means that I'm a servant of his in the role of government and policy because ultimately, to render to God what is God's is to say that my primary citizenship is in heaven. And that allows me to be then the very best citizen of the United States that I possibly can be. Yes, yes, I'm a citizen of the United States. In fact, I'm a country music-loving citizen of the United States of America. But my primary citizenship is in heaven and my primary citizenship allows me to engage 
this world and this culture as a faithful follower of Christ. And for some of God's people to render to God the things that are God's will call them to enter the political process as individual Christians being salt and light. Salt and light. Do we not need more salt and light in our capitals across the country? Well, do you know what the purpose of salt was in the first century? It wasn't for flavor. It wasn't to make your steak taste a little more juicy. The purpose of salt was to retard the rot. And so we need God's people to enter the political process, to be salt and light, to be the conscience of a political party, to irritate the party, to challenge the party, any of the parties, all of the parties. Because they're citizens of heaven first. You know, I don't know about you, but sometimes I've caught myself daydreaming, and my daydream goes like this. Oh, if only the president were a Bible-believing Christian like me. And oh, if we could only have a filibuster-proof majority in the Senate and they were Bible-believing Christians like me. And oh, if we could at least have 51% of the House who were Bible-believing Christians like me. And oh, if we could only have five of the nine Supreme Court justices being Bible-believing Christians just like me. If everybody else were just like me then our country would be a Christian nation. It's a pleasant fantasy. And then I'm reminded that God has never needed a majority in Congress to get his work done. It is not the government's job to forge a Christian nation. It's our job. It's the church's responsibility. And when a church, as a corporate body, gets tangled in any political party as a corporate body, the church experiences major mission drift, and it generally becomes good for the party and bad for the church. The church's mission gets diluted because the fact is human governments cannot be the rule of God because even Bible-believing Christians are sinful, broken, fallen people. And a government that holds itself up to speak for God is bound to make itself absolute. It's bound to deny the moral perplexities of their policies. And it's bound to reject criticism and it's bound to suppress dissent. Because people are sinful, broken, and fallen. We need to stop thinking of ourselves as citizens of a post-Christian nation and instead start thinking of ourselves as exiles of another kingdom. A kingdom that will far surpass any of the kingdoms that have ever happened in history. And when when we own that and give ourselves to all that God is, then we will be able to re-enter our world because we know, we know who the true king is. Well, that's our story. 
story about two kings, two kingdoms run by two kings, Tiberius and Jesus. One king has all the coins in the world. The other king, he doesn't have a quarter to his name. He has to ask for one. What kind of a king is that? Jesus has to ask for one. Both of them say, I'm king. Both of them say, I'm the son of God. Both of them say, I'm the high priest. But Jesus is offering a revolution to end all revolutions, the revolution of the kingdom of God. You see, see in worldly revolutions, what happens? New people occupy the same seats, right? That's how it works here. But Christ says, I am not like any other king. I spend my time with the marginal. I love the poor. I will heal the sick. And any who enter my kingdom will be like me. And I'm thinking of the delegation from Windsor Road right now on the medical mission trip to the DR. Right now, that's what's going on. Jesus is being sent out here from this church family. The kingdom of God. Christ says, I've come with no money, no power, no press corps, no luxury. Even my own father will abandon me. On the cross, I have no power. Politicians can't do anything without power. And to get that power, they have to get elected. And Christ says that his revolution is going to happen not upon his election, but upon his execution. Because Jesus is going to win not through coercive power, but through suffering service. And we enter his kingdom not in strength, but in the weakness and dependency of a little child. Two kings. One has all the coins. The other doesn't. And why, and why doesn't he have any of the coins? Why is Jesus a king without a coin? Philippians 2.7 says, because he emptied himself for my sake and became a servant. 2 Corinthians 8.9 says, he who was rich became poor so that through his poverty we might become rich. Matthew 20.28 says, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life for many. Two kings. Two kingdoms. Who are you? Remember that pastor I was telling you about? He had to make a decision. And here's what his decision was. His decision was that he was going to uh, painfully swallow his American pride and he was going to act as a servant of Christ. And sometimes being a servant of Christ means letting our country be insulted right in front of our very faces. That was his decision. And as a result of that decision, by the end of this evangelistic outreach missions trip that he was on, he was able to leave behind 24,000 copies of the New Testament. He was able to leave behind the, the mercy and love and integrity and truth of Christ. And he was even able to leave behind a few new believers. Huh? He did what he did because he knew who he was. Who are you?
to whose kingdom do you belong?